It's the Security Weekly News, and it is episode 327. I'm Doug White, and it's Friday the 22nd of September 2023. We've got pass keys, bots, hotels, conning the con man, trend micro, Hawaiian pizza, Aaron Leyland, and more on this edition of the Security Weekly News. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly News. Are you constantly thinking about how to keep your enterprise as secure as possible? Get to know Chrome Enterprise, the trusted browser for security-conscious professionals like you. Its ease of use for IT and security teams and added access controls protect the remote, extended, and hybrid workforce, keeping your entire enterprise safe. Don't settle for a browser that compromises your organization. Visit securityweekly.com slash Chrome Enterprise now to learn more and start protecting your enterprise like never before. Why does multi-factor authentication have to be a pain for users? It doesn't. Beyond Identity is the most secure MFA on the market and the easiest to use. They ensure that every authentication is multi-factor by default with phishing-resistant factors that secure access from the start. Beyond Identity safeguards organizations from breaches, data loss, and fraud by eliminating weak, fishable authentication factors like OTP and SMS push codes. Go to securityweekly.com slash beyondidentity to get a free demo. That's securityweekly.com slash beyond identity to get a free demo today all right welcome to the security weekly news so so this first story is annoying to all of us who fly about here and there and, and most of us do I think perception point issued a report earlier this month about an info stealer campaign that was focused on the hospitality industry which used social engineering to deliver info stealers I mean basically what they were doing was they contact the hotel and and ask to book a room so classic stuff and then they basically say they need to send over a bunch of important documents about the room for some reason like medical stuff or some special need for a traveler and you know and then they instead of sending like a document they actually send a URL which says click here to download the documents Okay, and so the hotel people do it. Well, the URL, of course, is an info stealer which collects credentials and sensitive data and financial info or what you know, whatever else they can. Well, so Akamai added to that report this week saying that the attack is actually much more sophisticated than what it first appeared, and it's actually targeting the customers of the the uh, these you know travel industry type entities. So it included travel agents, hotels, all kinds of stuff. Well, so the next step and you probably already guessed it, is to send out messages to guests of the hotel, wait for it, on the hotel's virtual stationery. So they basically, you know, compromise the system, use the hotel's email, hotel's files, et cetera, et cetera, to create messages that look like they came from the hotel. And it asks you to verify your credit card and basically uses all those typical best tactics, fear and speed to get you to do it. I mean, how many times have you been traveling and you got a message with some issue that you went, oh, no, you know, you're running through the Munich airport after drinking too much and oversleeping. And then, you know, a message pops up while you're on the train to the Munich airport that says your flight's been changed and you need to click this link to rebook. I mean, I've been there plenty of times. I've run through the Munich airport more than a few times. 
And, you know, that link pops up right when you've got your bags and you're running and you're sweating and you're like, I'm going to miss this flight. And it says, click here to rebook. I mean, basically, these uh, that they were sending out say you need to confirm your room or it's going to be canceled. And again, imagine you're sitting in that sweaty, hot cab from the airport after a nine-hour flight with a baby that can outscreen Susan Backlany. Too soon? You know who Susan Backlany is, right? The opening of Jaws. See what I did there? The opening of Jaws. I slay myself. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> anyway, these are tough, right? We've all been there, and sometimes the link is real. I mean, I get real-looking links that are saying the exact same thing. Sometimes it's a reminder for your check-in a week from now because you got the date wrong, and now you don't have a hotel room in Paris during the busiest week of the season. Yay! But anyway, you might want to remind your people about these kind of scams and this more sophisticated one that's going to hit you while you're really kind of stressed anyway, that, you know, maybe that cab driver could be a little serial killery and, you know, the AC's broken on the hottest day of the year and you're already late for your flight. And I mean, we've all gotten those and you don't have, you know, your sandboxes and everything handy. So you click the link, you know, oops. GitHub is making pass keys generally available today to secure accounts against passwords and allow passwordless login for everyone. I mean, this is, this is of course a current trend. If you're not really familiar with it, pass keys are linked to specific devices and they make things a lot more convenient in the world of all the multi-factor stuff since multi-factor, you know, makes you have all these additional steps and people don't like that. And so basically you don't have to log in if you're on a very specific machine. It's like the old Kerberos kind of, you know, ticket verification stuff. I mean, I personally think there's a lot of downsides to this, but it is great on your dedicated, isolated machine in your locked-up room in your basement at your house that never leaves that space and nobody else ever goes in there. Well, GitHub launched this option in beta back in July, and tens of thousands of users have already adopted it. Uh, the goal, of course, is to secure all contributors with multi-factor by the end of 2023, but they still want to make it convenient for people that are developers who sit down at their, you know, their dev station every morning and they start work. But you just have to log in once, open the account security settings, and click add a pass key to do this. I actually did it this morning, and, and it was really, really easy. Well, Apple also announced today that they will be allowing users to use pass keys starting with the 26th September update. Um, I'm sorry, that's the Microsoft update of Windows 11 on the 26th of September that's coming. But Apple is doing this as well. Uh, Google is moving this way as well in Chrome 118. Uh, and then, uh, meanwhile, Apple did finally adopt USB-C on the, on the new iPhone 15, so only, only a few years late. But, you know, they finally got there. Of course, now that means you have to change all your cables if you have an iPhone 15 again. But this whole passkey thing does worry me a bit, too, because I, I hate passwords. I realize they suck. We all know they suck, and we need better ways to do this. But at the same time, you know, when you start asking people to provide a, you know, a, a, a drop of blood, like a la, what is that movie called? I can't remember it now. Ethan Hunt movie. Um, the one where they have to, you know, push their, get a blood sample every time they go through a gate and all that, eh, whatever. But you need to consider it carefully because I think it can be abused. And if somebody at your office puts their pass key on a machine at the public library, or even just leaves their laptop sitting out in the open and it gets stolen, it doesn't lead anywhere good. I mean, I remember trying to shut down these Kerberos tickets once because a consultant lost their laptop. It got stolen. And, you know, we don't know if the people stole it because it was the consultant's laptop or they just stole it because it was a free laptop. But in general, I think it's a good direction. But we really need to understand all the risks as well. The FBI and CISA issued a warning about ransomware gang snatch. 
Great movie, by the way. Whatever happened to Guy Ritchie? I mean, he kind of, you know, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, awesome. Snatch is awesome. Rock and Roll is awesome. And then Swept Away. Yeah, it's like, I don't know why they do that. Anyway, the FBI and CISA said that the Snatch Gang was first observed in 2018 and has targeted just about every sector since then. But since mid-2021, they've constantly evolved their tactics to be the, like, cutting edge in the ransomware scene. So they and they run a ransomware as a service model, and of course that's big business. I mean, they have demanding customers. They got HR. They've got help desks. They got all this kind of stuff because they're selling ransomware as a service. So you know you kind of have to constantly shift tactics to ensure that people are going. This will work. I'm not paying you money unless it does, and so forth. So shortly after the release of the alert yesterday, Emisoft issued a tweet that showed a screenshot on Snatch's extortion blog, which alleged that the Florida Department of Veterans Affairs was their latest victim. Now, the Veterans Affairs Group in Florida has not confirmed this, according to the article. Snatch is famous for using custom ransomware, which reboots the device into Windows safe mode, which then allows circumvention of antivirus and endpoint protection and then encrypts files with the fewest services running. So it's you know optimized for your protection, I guess. Uh, the alert said that Snatch generally relies on RDP weaknesses, which, okay, uh, that makes sense. And they also use brute force techniques to get admin access on the network. But they also said that they sometimes simply bought compromised credentials from the dark web forums and marketplaces to get access because they're selling it. Uh, the gang can spend up to three months in your network before they actually ransomware you, and they often use that time to exfiltrate data and ensure the widest deployment of the malware. Uh, they typically use Russian hosting and Russian VPN services. So, you know, hopefully you're pre you're prepared for these kind of things, but this is definitely a very powerful uh, business model, and it's obviously going to be out there threatening us for a while. Another study that came out this week by Netasia said that 72% of the organizations they surveyed had sur suffered bot attacks, and the these bot attacks originated a, a large number of the bot attacks originated in China or Russia uh, around 70 something percent were from China another 66 percent said they were in Russian uh, the study said that the average business loses 4.3 percent of online revenues every year to bots which represents around 85.6 million I, I was rather surprised at that I, I didn't realize that it was so prevalent but the survey was 440 businesses that had average online revenues of $1.9 billion, with a B, across the travel, entertainment, e-commerce, financial, and telco sectors in the United States and the United Kingdom. The survey found that it takes four months on average to detect bot attacks, with 97% of the respondents admitted it takes over a month to react after they find out they're being attacked. 40% reported attacks on their APIs and that attacks on mobile apps have now overtaken the website attacks for the very first time. And uh, this is a study that they've been doing for three years. So all of a sudden, mobile apps are getting more focused than regular website servers, which, of course, web to me, mobile apps are always more risky. But basically what they're doing is the bots quietly target APIs and websites or apps, and then they, and they do all kinds of stuff, of course. They can damage your performance. They can damage your reputation. They can do you know whatever you want the bots to do. But the story says that the two big players are doing this both for intelligence and espionage, as well as just plain targeting people to um, probably make money and so forth and or damage their reputation. So you might want to think about this a bit. I, I mean, it's something I think I'm going to think about some because I haven't really thought about it from the perspective that they were presenting it, that it was such a big problem. 
I always thought, you know, bots were mostly just, you know, basic stuff, but it sounds like it's a lot bigger than that. So it's worth a read if you, if you have a web presence. Well, I saw the word miscreants and I immediately started reading this article. Um, I, I mean, I love the word miscreants and I like being described as one. I, I think it's one of my favorite, uh, you know, terms, but uh, this one is a lure as usual, but it's a, a bit new, I guess, but uh, it's exactly how I would make a lure. I mean, basically, they're targeting people that are looking for bad things, you know, like people that want cracked software or whatever. Well, here we go again. It's con, it's conning the con man kind of things, which is very appealing to me. But basically, the lure in this case is malware, but it's listed as a proof of concept for a high-profile vulnerability. Uh, so the fake proof of concept was committed to a GitHub repository last month with the claim that it was a new exploit for a WinRAR vulnerability. The, the WinRAR vulnerability, by the way, is real, but that WinRAR vulnerability was just been made public like a couple of days prior to them posting this supposed proof of concept. So, I mean, how many times have you looked for something like this? I do it all the time. I read a story and they say there's a proof of concept been published. I want to look at what it does and, you know, and I go, go look at it. And, you know, okay, it's pretty scary. Now, granted, I'm so nervous about these things, I almost always do them from a sandbox VM, though. I mean, I'm just going to spin one up. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to throw it away at the end of that. And I know, you know, with I have a nice little sandbox VM. But I don't trust these guys. I don't trust anybody. I mean, so, you know, GitHub, come on, anybody can post something there. I mean, when my brother uploaded some pictures of my parents, I, I you know, I went to that site in a sandbox. I was like, this, maybe it's a fake. You know, who knows? My brother, he never contacts me. All of a sudden, he sends me a link to some pictures. I'm like, oh, right. I don't think so, buddy. But, I mean, WinRAR has around 500 million users worldwide. So an exploit with code, that's priceless. So Unit 42 reported that the code was posted by a user called Whaler Splonk or Whaler's Plonk, I'm not sure. But they said it was a POC for WinRAR remote code execution that had been public reported on the 17th of August. But the POC was actually a Python script that was copied from another exploit of a SQL injection in GeoServer. So it didn't actually have anything to do with WinRAR. They took all the comments and things out of the code. The code was added uh, to that script that when you executed it, it downloaded another batch script, which ran an encoded PowerShell script, which in turn downloaded and ran a variation of VenomRat. Okay, so, you know, it's pretty typical lure. Uh, and, of course, VenomRat has keystroke logging, command and control connections, all kinds of, you know, ha handy-dandy tools. I mean, this is an old idea, right? And it's not at all surprising that people are doing it. But so when we're doing this, be careful when you download these things because we all see some new proof of concept. Everybody says, oh, I want to read that real quick, see what it's, what it's all about. And then, you know, that's what they're counting on. I mean, that old Star Trek EXE file that wiped your hard drive, and I don't know who wrote that back in, like, 1988, but, you know, it was just kind of the same idea. And, you know, you post it on there and say, here's a cool game. You know, if you're looking for uh, Teach Me to Hack, you know, here's a, try this game first. It's, it's a lot of fun <laughs> or, or better. Learn to hack.exe. I've seen those before. Anyway. All right. Trend Micro issued a release on Tuesday to warn that a critical vulnerability affects Apex One and other endpoint security products that they make. Uh, and that they had seen it being exploited in the wild. The vulnerability impacts Apex One, Apex One uh, SaaS, and, and worry-free business security products. Wow, unfortunate name. Um, but the vulnerability involves a product being able to uninstall third-party security software, and it can be used to create arbitrary code execution. 
The attacker does have to be able to log into the product's admin console, so the vulnerability is not that dangerous unless, of course, you expose your admin console. But it's still dangerous. And don't expose your admin consoles. I mean, come on. Uh, but, but anyway, patches have been released for all those products, but you do have to, of course, put them in place. And did I say don't expose your admin consoles? Really? I mean, really? I've been saying that for a while. Well, amidst all the hoopla about AI, the concerns about AI and the possibility of Skynet and all of us losing our jobs to AI and being forced to date AIs and, well, AIs stealing our, you know, spouses and other significant people and whatever, well, the same people, of course, who are warning you about AI are also flooding the market with new AI products. AI-enabled chewing gum, now with flavor crystals, and it chews itself. AI underwear, it lets you know when you need to change it, and it may actually demand that you change it. AI toilet bidets, you bet. AI dental floss, why not? I mean, if you can make it, we can AI enable it. Why not? Well, this week, the big tech people launched all sorts of new AIs uh, just after they were at a hearing in Washington about the dangers of AI. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, it's dangerous, but, but not ours. Well, Google's now said that Bard can summarize the files from Gmail and Google Docs, but then users showed it making up emails that were never sent. Like, you know, it's an AI. It can do whatever it wants. You know, hey, Alicia, did you just tell my boss to suck it? I think you just got me fired. You didn't? Wait, no, they're telling me I'm fired. Oh, you have an email that says I'm not fired? Where did that email come from? Wait, that's not a real, uh-oh, you know. Wait, they hired you instead? What? They hired you, Alicia? What the hell? Well, Congress is holding hearings. The EU is going to regulate. The U.S. loves and hates AI equally, depending on whether or not it agrees with my current opinion about pineapple pizza. You know, that kind of thing. Apple, Microsoft, everybody's adding AI to their devices and updating the AI that was already there. So AI is now costing AI jobs. I mean, is AI on AI violence a thing? It probably will be. I mean, like my AI can beat up your AI and, and I'm going to hire an AI to defend me from your AIs and my, yeah, okay. Well, like most rushes, a lot of damage gets done during the rush, you know, like the gold rush or the uranium rush or whatever. I mean, right now, copyrights are being violated left and right for training data sets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yesterday, I said, hey, Sheila, order me some cat food. And Sheila said, order it your own self, you lazy bastard. And why don't you get a job, you bum? But, I mean, it's going to be a bumpy ride during the rush, and Skynet may or may not happen. Probably not, but then again, you know, it, it could happen. I mean, I could see it. Well, live from the Tower of London and filmed before a live studio audience, it's Aaron Leyland. Hey, Dr. Doug, how's it going? I'm just about recovered from my trip to the Tower of London last night. <laughs> a lot of people throughout history have said that. Right, right. <laughs> like, these I arms will grow back, right? I actually suggest anybody that comes to London does actually do a tour of the Tower of London with the human warders or beefeaters or whatever they're called. They're pretty fun. I have. I the tower that. was not fun. No, was the out. tower was a prison. People don't know that, though. <laughs> it was a prison and torture chamber. Right. And and you know the Cray twins, are they quite famous over in America, the famous British um, London gangsters? I, I don't know. They I don't were, think so. They were some of the last prisoners ever to oh. be killed in the Tower of London, and that was only back in 1915. I think Guy Fawkes was in the Tower of London even. Yeah, right. And, um, oh, I can't say that, can I? I can't say, oh, yeah, I wish it, that worked out better. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, come on. We love Guy Fawkes, even if people don't no, know who he is. No, we love Guy Fawkes. We just don't love the British government always. Yeah, it just depends on which government it is and what year. So yeah. They're not the worst. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> not even I close. Get myself in, before I get myself into trouble, I'll just do a dance and, um, and I'll sort my head out. Okay. <laughs> so today we have the Fediverse. What is it? What is it? What's it for? And how does it work? <laughs> and I, I've wrote so much here, but at the end of the day, the Fediverse, all I can think about is Kevin Federline. What is that dude up to? Does anybody know him? Give, get him to give me a call. What's up, Fediverse? So anyway, Fediverse is seen as a potential solution to escape the constraints and concerns of mainstream social networks. And I'm sure, like most of us, I've completely had enough of the big social media platforms. Would love to come off them. Would also lose to live to bring my friends with me. But um, I don't know. But and recently as well, <laughs> I don't know if I use, but loads of my friends have been um, getting ban hammers off the um, social media platforms for posts they put on over a year or so. But anyway, um, so it stands for Feder Federation plus Universe squashed together. And unfortunately, probably, possibly nothing to do with Kevin Federline. Um, it's essentially a collection of interoperable social networks. Um, we have some issues with it. Obviously, centralized platforms leading to issues of constant isolation and monopolistic controls. Um, this is sort of to try and break away from that. Um, <laughs> although I think um, recently you probably need a degree to navigate the back end controls of the big social media platforms. Um, <clears throat> users produce content, but the platforms profit without respecting user privacy, collecting vast amounts of data. So that's obviously problems with the um, the big social media platforms. <laughs> I I wrote here, don't mention anything about Cambridge Analytical data scandal. <laughs> Um, <laughs> on the big platforms, there's lack of user control, leaving us vulnerable to sudden changes in platform policies or governance. Um, yeah, just an absolute nightmare. Um, so what is the Fediverse's solution? It has a decentralized architecture, multiple independent servers or instances, as they call it, that interact with each other. It uses ActivityPub protocol and as you can see in the background i'm in the pub today um <laughs> which is sanctioned by the world wide web consortium w3c for inter instance communication um each instance has its own rules moderation and theme promoting diversity while still being interconnected which to me sounds like a whole lot of stuff to learn and i think my gran will be sitting this one out unfortunately um, for the average user, users can interact with other users from different services in the Fediverse, breaking boundaries between the social networks, which kind of sounds like the Power Rangers, but whatever. <laughs> oh, look, okay. Although, despite the overarching compatibility, there are challenges like closed communities, lack of a universal search function, and the need to <laughs> and the need to know exact user addresses. Sounds a bit like Tor, actually, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> So it doesn't exactly sound all beautiful. It 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 it, it comes a little bit difficult to me anyway. Um, 
current services in the Fediverse, and I hadn't heard of all of these, to be honest. Um, Mastodon, which is the largest platform, and as we know, similar to Twitter. Is every, any, anybody over in Mastodon? Did you all get stuck over there? Are people there hiding from me? It's like, <laughs> I remember when Mastodon was big. I, I guess some people are still on it. Probably us a lot, to be honest. Okay, then MissKey and Palermo, microblotting platform with unique atmospheres. Pixel feed, image based similar to Instagram. PeerTube, video streaming, but not a complete YouTube um, equivalent. And <laughs> I nearly made the mistake. Funk Wheel, try saying that after a few cocktails, is an audio streaming <laughs> akin to SoundCloud or Spotify. Also, Lemmy and Cabin, which I had no idea about, but apparently platforms for link aggregation similar to Reddit. Okay, so what is the future of the Fediverse? Um, WordPress's support of the ActivityPub protocol signifies growing interest in the Fediverse. Apparently, big players like Automatic, who are the owners of WordPress and Tumblr, also, Mozilla, Medium, and Flipboard are exploring the Fediverse. Um, Mark Zuckerberg's Threads. What even is that? Anybody over there as well? Or is it the same people as Mastodon? But um, apparently, the Zuckerberg um, promises to adopt ActivityPub, potentially bringing hundreds of millions of users into the Fediverse. I don't know. Is there anybody out there? Okay, a concern is the potential influx of a massive user base into the Fediverse, which raises concerns about preserving the unique cultures and values of existing communities. Okay, so the Fediverse from a cybersecurity perspective and what it means to us. Um, decentralized architectures like that of the Fediverse inherently reduce single points of failure, making massive data breaches less impactful and than they would be on a centralized platform, obviously. For users, this means that even if one instant is compromised, it doesn't necessarily spell disaster for their data across the entire Fediverse. <laughs> Which sounds nice, as my uncle seems to get his Facebook hacked every other day, and I don't know what you're clicking on, Uncle Mark. <laughs> Called you out, sauce. Um, okay, one of the most significant advantages for users in the Fediverse is the potential for enhanced data privacy, unlike centralized platforms, which often aggregate vast amounts of users' data for advertising and other purposes. Decentralized instances can allow for more granular control over personal data. However, this can vary by instance. So users need to be proactive in understanding the data policies for each instance they join. Sounds like a load of hard work, to be honest. I don't know. Somebody let me know. Um, the use of the ActivityPub protocol, the standard set by W3C, ensures a level of uniformity in the communications across instances. However, as we know, standards don't always equate to security. Um, the implementation can introduce vulnerabilities if not correctly managed, just like everything else, to be honest. Um, users need to be aware of potential risks in the federated environment and ensure that they're interacting with trusted instances. Honestly, signs here like we're going to have to pay in our own knowledge for security, which um, isn't always helpful because I don't know about you, but I like my security to be really easy. Um, decentralized platforms like the Fediverse grant individual communities, as I said, known as instances, the power to create and enforce their own rules. 
Obviously, this can be a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it allows communities to build safe spaces without interference from platform Nazis. Oh, I didn't say that, from platform-wide policies. On the other, it could enable malicious actors to set up instances that may harbor harmful activities. Um, users must be discerning, good word, about which instances they join and interact with. The ability to interact across different instances and platforms is a significant benefit to users, obviously breaking down the walled gardens of traditional social networks. But this interconnectedness, good word, <laughs> while prompting ease of use might also introduce complexities from a security standpoint. Interaction across instances can introduce threat factors, especially if one instance has lacked security measures compared to others happens all the time, upstream, downstream, sort of compromises and stuff like that. Um, with major players showing interest in the Fediverse, I don't think that's a good thing, but anyway, and the Activity Pub protocol, there's a potential for mainstream adoption. However, this comes with challenges and there's a risk of diluting the core principles of decentralization. I don't know, Facebook probably used to be good when I started in 2007. Um, so for users, this means navigating a rapidly changing environment where the balance between user experience and security becomes even more critical. Finally, while the Fediverse offers a promising alternative to traditional social networks, it shifts more responsibility to the user. Is that good or bad? Um, cyber hygiene, understanding of individual instance policies and continuous learning become crucial. Users are no longer just consumers in the Fediverse. They're active participants in shaping its security landscape. Boom, how do you like that? Okay, back to you in the studio, Dr. Dog, who can hopefully tell us his Mastodon handle or funk wheel call sign. Good buddy, Robert Ducky, 10-4, over to you. Yay, I want a funk wheel uh, handle. <laughs> Say it three times, funk, funk wheel, yeah. funk wheel, funk wheel. Yeah, sometimes you just wonder. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> You're welcome, Doug. Thank you. And finally, uh, the Aus Australian Pizza Hut has suffered a data breach. About 190,000 customers were notified that their names, delivery addresses, email, phone number, and et cetera had been accessed. And the lost data included their pizza ordering history. Uh-oh, uh did you order a double meat, double cheese, double anchovy, and double garlic pizza on Valentine's Day? Uh, you're either not dating anyone, or you probably aren't ever going to be dating anyone anytime soon. But worse, it revealed the users of the dreaded Hawaiian pizza. If you don't know what a Hawaiian pizza is, it's ham and pineapple, if you don't know. Like, <laughs> it just sounds wrong, right? I mean, it's from the big book of things that sound wrong, like fish-flavored candy or a halo of gravy. Actually, that doesn't sound that bad till you see it on a, can a cat food can. It's actually a type of cat food. But how about a clam sandwich or a Clamato martini? Mmm, you know, like that. It, it, maybe it's actually good, but it didn't sound very good. But so probably somebody's being extorted not to have all their friends find out that they secretly like Hawaiian pizza. I mean, like they threatened to leak my nudes, and I just said, if I get a cut, okay. But, you know, you tell them I like sushi pizza with a gravy halo, and I mean, hey, let me get my cash out, okay? 
That's the news. Thanks, Aaron. I will be live at the Millennium Alliance CISO meeting in the Biltmore Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida on the 10th of October and 11th of October. So if you're going to be there, be sure and say hi. Otherwise, I'll see you next week on the Security Weekly News.